Listening to the Revenge of the Birds podcast, part of the SB Nation Podcast Network, all about your Arizona Cardinals. Hello, welcome in. This is the Revenge of the Birds podcast, your complete cards coverage. We're back with our second podcast this week. We'll get into the Seattle Seahawks game, previewing a team that right now is at 2-1, and one, but the, the Seattle fan base, at least, is feeling like it's almost like an 0-3 team, oddly enough. We'll talk a bit about the Cardinals, where their current position is. Um, a little bit of draft talk for those of you guys who love talking some draft. I know it's early in the season. The Cardinals, they're not quite there yet yet as far as talking all of that one but the Cardinals are right now at a 0-2-1 record they had their last loss to the Carolina Panthers and here to discuss the team with me is my wonderful co-host the venerable John venerable Johnny how are you doing as we kind of record our second podcast on a uh, on our Monday night right over here I'm doing all right Blake uh, I want to see some improvements this Sunday and I would love to see the Seattle home dominance against the Arizona Cardinals come to an end. They have lost, I think, six straight uh, appearances or essentially have not won. They had the one tie in there. But the last time the Cardinals beat the Seattle Seahawks in their building was in Russell Wilson's first game as a pro in 2012. And remember, they almost lost that. So I think it would be very appropriate for Kyler Murray in his first season to put an end to that um, against the Seattle team that looks a little vulnerable right now, Blake. Yeah, they they look vulnerable. Part of it is that it seems to be that they're just becoming a almost like a make Russell Wilson look as good as possible type of team. Uh, they've really not done that much outside of having some huge plays in the fourth quarter. Um, we'll talk a little bit about how they did just drop a game to the Teddy Bridgewater led Saints. Um, yesterday, and it was a disappointing game that they lost at home. The Saints are normally a dome team. Um, you're talking at least about um, uh, an offensive coordinator who's been very much, I guess you could say, maligned in a lot of different ways for wanting to establish the run to get out there. A lot of ways you could say the Seahawks are the team that wants to be the anti Arizona Cardinals. Uh, they kind of turned into the Cardinals with Russell Wilson attempting 50 passes last week, but we'll get into some of our kind of matchups and things we'll go over. The first thing I wanted to be able to bring up is continuing this talk of Steve Kime, because uh, just looking at what we've had from comments from fans, there's we talked a little bit about it with our last podcast. There's been fire Kime tweets that have been showing up. People just have been wanting to move on from him. I know you and I have had a hard time with the um, – just with the lack of detail with the offensive line and so many other different issues. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit, because I want to bring up this. Rudy Carpenter, at least, he's one of the former ASU quarterbacks. He's a kind of an interesting fellow. He's been the one person who has been com- repeatedly, at least, I guess some would say down on the Cardinals this year. I think that he's looking at the team a little bit more how what they showed through preseason. He wanted to say, hey, this isn't going to work for the first two parts of the game. He's very much seems to be on the uh, as far as the performance of the Cardinals, very much focusing on it being a team sport. Wants to be able to talk about, hey, I think that you want to make sure that you need to have better defense. Their O line needs upgrades for that one. Um, he's also talked at least about, hey, here's one of the things I think right now: the Cardinals are playing well because Kyler is playing well. Now there's interceptions which the rookies make, but they don't have an identity and they don't have a personnel. So the question I think that you have to ask is if identity and personnel come from the general manager and people are now saying this is a personnel problem. Is this ultimately something then that falls on where you have people saying that Steve Kime should be let go now? They talked about this and there's other podcasts I've heard at least that are cards related that have brought this up who say hey, they should move on from Steve Kime. There's even the question we mentioned last week where Ken Summers was talking about should he be let go? This is kind of the one thing I'm curious about because, John, if they do end up letting uh, – let's let's go ahead and say that the Cardinals' offensive line continues to struggle. I am of the belief that I think Kime needs to show that he can 
show improvements to the offensive line where you want to see it get better. You don't want to see it get worse. And to me, yesterday was a day where it got worse. If that continues to be a trend where you're like, oh, Kyler's running for his life. He's throwing the ball early. He's end up kind of looking gun shy where he just doesn't like to take hits. Then I think then you start to point and look at the general manager saying, hey, you put we're the one who put this line together. Where do you think if the Cardinals end up looking with with Steve Kime, do you think that this is, one, an area where it's severe enough that they should be talking about moving on from him at least uh, this early? Like, I, I'm still of the idea of you wait till the end of the season to evaluate yeah. and assess. But do you think that this is a spot where if they do decide to move on for that one, why would they end up – like, not to say why they move why would they choose to necessarily – Keep with Steve Kime, and if they do decide to move on, where would they go? Because I think those are two completely different areas that have a lot of ramifications for the Cardinals. I don't see them moving on from him as long as Cliff Kingsbury is still the head coach. Uh, I think that they are Mm. tied together. Um, I think that until Kingsbury and Murray develop a rapport and a track record in this league where you could convince another GM to come in and, and keep both of them, it wouldn't be as hard with Kyler. But Cliff might be a hard sell for a lot of free agent GMs, whereas, Mm. you know, this is Steve Kimes' guy. This is Michael Bidwell's guy. I think they're all in unison. They have a plan. It may not be a good plan, but they have a plan. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I think it would take a lot for Michael Bidwell. You heard how defensive he was last year um, in the the end-year press conference. And he, he attributes Steve Kimes' success not to draft picks. And, and maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong, but he looks at the win-loss record since he's taken over. And outside of last year, he really had never had a losing season. I don't really count that 7-8. I guess you can count it the 7-8-1 year with the tie in 2016. But they went 8-8 eight in eight 2017. And then mm-hmm. before that, from 2013 to 2015, they were one of the most productive teams in football. They won double-digit games every season. Um, and he pulled off a, a plethora of good and quality moves over that time. For whatever reason, it, really it was from about 2016 to 2018, yeah. his his drafts and his free agent moves have been really, really poor. Um, he had that really nice 2015 draft class. I'm not including DJ Humphreys, but you had David Johnson and Marcus Golden before that in 2017. Rodney Gunter, Rodney Gunter Rodney was Gunter. a lifesaver they traded up for, yep. Yeah, and then the, you were getting contributions from the 2013-2014 draft classes in Dayon Buchanan, John Brown, Tyron Matthew. Um, unfortunately, none of those guys panned out to outside of Tyron Matthew to second contracts with this team. Um, and so it's kind of it's a combination of that and then the poor drafts from 16, 17, and 18. Now, mm-hmm. hopefully some of these players come to fruition, but you know, the, I think the 2018 draft is what it is because of the Rosen deal. So, you know, at the end of the day, Blake, I, I think I understand the, the, you know, the, the frustration from the fan base. I have the frustration because it's, you know, the offensive line, which has been my biggest point of contention with this franchise. But I also know I'm I'm a real I'm a realist that he didn't fire him after the extreme DUI. He didn't fire mm-hmm. him after one of the most embarrassing seasons in NFL history, certainly in franchise history. He just let him pick, handpick the head coach, handpick the defensive coordinator, mm-hmm. trade away Josh Rosen. I, I think that outside of another public embarrassment, um, which it would take a lot. The Cardinals are more competitive this year. I'm sure that's what they'll try to sell us on. Outside of that happening, where you're just uh, a you know complete buffoonery worse than last season, I think he's going to keep his job. I think that if the only outside chance they fire him, I think that they would almost have to go with an in-house candidate, somebody who's been around the franchise, who's who's seen the maturation of Kyler Murray and the relationship they have with Cliff Kingsbury, because that will not be an easy sell. For, yeah. an, for a new GM to come in and work with Cliff Kingsbury and draft the kind of players he wants when Cliff Kingsbury, it'd be one thing if this was Sean Payton and he's been a proven head coach, proven winner, proven offensive mind, or even like a Kyle Shanahan where you're like, hey, I can put up 30 points a game. I just need you to help fill the cupboard with, with the groceries, right? right? There's a relationship aspect that goes into it. Cliff and Kime did establish a relationship that's part of yeah. why they reached out and were able to you know, essentially assign him. Now He will what, not go yeah. anywhere, in my opinion, before 2020. Yeah, and I think that's where, I, and I think that you're right on as far as with 2020. It seems like you want to give two years. That's kind of what I know with, uh, with some of the other people with talking with our site manager, Seth Cox. That's kind of the whole thing that we had asked and talked about because we were just wondering, hey, is this going to be a clean house, a clean sweep? And then kind of the answer we got back was, well, last time that they waited so long that they weren't able to get their first pick, they wanted to work quickly. 
you were able to sign your number one choice this year instead of kind of maybe your, I don't know if it was third or fourth. Eventually, you kind of compromised, but you got your number one choice in Cliff this year. You kind of had a weird aspect for Kaim where you had this sudden turnaround of, oh, hey, we're going to be taking Kyler Murray. Wait, what? No, it's got, and now maybe, and he kind of even said he was reticent to watch him up until like he eventually is, you know, was seemingly won over by it. I do think, though, that at some point, this is kind of maybe the example I'll give is if you think of it like as far as with credence, there's never an infinite amount of credence. Like if you get someone who ditches out of work for a day, a boss may overlook it. If it's two days in a row, then it's an issue. If it's three days in a row, then you're going to call. There's there's a certain level that you can have, I think, unless, you know, you have blackmail, which we're we're not going to even discuss about any of that stuff here because that's a whole other whole other ramification there. But there's a certain level of trust that you build and there's things that can kind of break away the trust you think of a jenga tower like if you pull out a thing of a jenga tower you're going to be able to have a brick that's in place you keep pulling out bricks and eventually that tower is going to get wobble and then how we felt for a lot of fans felt was that for steve kime a lot of fans felt that hey you passed in patrick mahomes you didn't address the offensive line you ended up paying out these different contracts you didn't have a quarter and so all of these kind of bricks a lot of people thought that the jenga tower fell over for the most part, with Steve Kime that year and that he was going to be shown the door and that Wilkes was part of his fault. Now, I think you and I talked about and were like, hey, like they had interviews. They even came out and were very upfront and said, Steve Wilkes was not going to change to a 4-3, and then suddenly they changed to a 4-3. We were told that they were going to be adaptable and flexible on offense, and then they just had no game plan with Mike McCoy, so they ended up having to adapt. We believe that Sam Bradford, they had a plan for him and a track, and so a lot of things that they went, they just there were poor decisions that were made, but it was like, hey, we made the wrong choice. Let's go ahead and make the right one. What I think you've kind of run into here, at least, is are we going to see a Cardinals team that's going to end up having issues where if they end up, let's say the team, they don't end up hitting the five or six wins that we're projecting them to. There's improvement that you show, but they kind of are still not there in defense. Is there the case where, on one hand, you could either look at it as, did Michael Bidwell and Steve Kime just say, no, we're putting that Jenga tower up together, and then you start taking pieces out again? Or is it a spot where everyone kind of has their own Jenga tower? Because I got to say, there's enough, at least, I think, backlash with Steve Kime right now that I could see there being a push against Michael Bidwell. So that's kind of the the one thing I'm at right now is, is there going to be enough? Like, let's like, if Kyler Murray ends up taking, say, 65, 70 sacks this year, is that going to be maybe a, one of those straw that breaks the camel's back moments? Because we saw that was the case where the Denver game wasn't the straw that broke the camel's back for Steve Wilkes. It was that Lions game where you should have won that game. It was only 17-3. to There was nothing that you got out of the team after that Green Bay Packers win. And then you, you came down to where at that point you're like, oh, he's, he's kind of done. I'm just curious if there's a spot that could break the camel's back because in my opinion, John, there is kind of another answer, I think, for the Cardinals. And I'll, I'll share. And I'll, I know there's been talk about this. Kent Summers, I know, had a part of a discussion with this. But Steve Kime wasn't totally alone in the hiring of Cliff Kingsbury. We did find out from this past offseason that they promoted Quentin Harris to be the director of pro personnel. He took over for the, I believe it was, almost said Sean McDonough. But no, he took over for um, Terry McDonough, who was in that position previously. He kind of stepped down. That was... Steve Kimes essential, I guess you could say right hand man after Jason Light left to go to the Bucks. So he gets promoted. Adrian Wilson gets promoted from his director of stuff, at least into being kind of the director of college scouting. So you've got two guys who are there. Adrian Wilson had a huge hand in the hiring of Cliff Kingsbury. He's got Michael Bidwell's ear. You also have Quentin Harris, who kind of took over the role that Steve Kime had before Kime was the uh, general manager. So what I'm wondering is if you feel like, and this is kind of where maybe this is projecting out a bit but John do you think that there's a scenario where the Cardinals feel like they can't totally trust Kime to rebuild the offensive line could they look at some sort of a compromise where let's say that you end up saying all right you know what here's the thing we need to give Cliff two years with people who believe in him maybe even three years because of this rookie quarterback contract Steve Kime has just had a lot of things that we just don't have a lot of faith in is it possible that maybe you would see a promotion for Quentin Harris and then the Cardinals for their director of pro personnel go outside the organization, bring in kind of an outside voice, a veteran guy, bring in a couple of their people and scouts, kind of get that breath of fresh air that the organization may need as far as, especially with scouting some of these offensive line or finding some of these things like, hey, you know, you do it this way. We've learned from the past. This is the way you want to do it. 
but still have uh, overall a person who believes in Cliff Kingsbury and is trusting it. I don't know, because then it also means that you're still then leaving a very important part of the Cardinals to an inexperienced first-time general manager. What, what are some of your thoughts on that kind of proposed outlook that uh, that some people have? The one that I would say, if you wanted to move on from Kime, that would be the one I would almost look at. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think if, if they were to make a change, that is the change that they would make. Uh, that, that makes all the sense in the world. Um we talk about promoting from within. Steve Kime was promoted from within. Now, mm-hmm. he was a hot commodity uh, and well-respected within the scouting community. Um, I'm not sure. I think Rod Graves um, was also promoted from within. He was. Yep. He was the vice president of football operations from 97 that's to 2001. That's how the Cardinals work, baby. That's, how, so, that's just how they work, it seems, right? Absolutely. So the last two general managers were promoted from within, and I, I think that Listen, I, do I think it's likely? Not at this point, but would it surprise me at the duration of the season that the Cardinals, or even before the season's over, right? And they just say, we're going to make a clean break so we can start the offseason up and running. We're not going to worry about interviews. Um, if we get a tweet or a message comes out from Adam Schefter and says the Cardinals and have terminated uh, general manager Steve Kime and have promoted you know, director of player personnel Quentin Harris to the role, I think that they be kind of a wink wink nudge nudge um I, I i don't even know what to call it for the fan base to basically see like we're we're trying to address this we believe yeah. we have a talented guy in it would house. be reactionary it would be very yeah. reactionary to have it mid-season normally stuff would be like you'd be well, you'd i would think it like maybe two season. or three games left no i don't think it would be mid-season hmm. oh, I do, interesting. I, yeah yeah i think it would be i i don't think they would do it after the season um because i think that they would maybe they would, but I think it would lead the the fan base to believe that they're going to go and look for a new GM. But if you do it like one or two games before the season finale and you just say, Hey, we're going to part ways with Steve Kime. We're, we plan on like, this is exactly Mm -hmm. what we're doing. We're not doing anything else. We're not going through a, a GM search. We like who we have because I think you hit the nail on the head, Blake. They have to continue to support Cliff Kingsbury yep. and, to a lesser extent, Kyler Murray, which I think most people are bought into. And they already had a one-and-done head coach last offseason. They, yep. they f- I think they feel fortunate. I don't think this is getting talked about enough. So I th- I'm fairly certain that new head coaches this, this offseason were winless through two weeks. I'm not sure about three weeks. Um, but I do know that somebody who the Cardinals liked, Adam Gase, looks awful, and his body language mm-hmm. is terrible. Say what you want yeah, about they like They King- liked him up until that interview, it seems like. Yeah, right? <laughs> absolutely. Say what you want about uh, Cliff Kingsbury. He, he's won over this franchise, this coaching, or excuse me, this front office, um, and I do think that they're eventually going to win some games here from their offense alone. I don't know what to, can be said about their defense, but I think Kingsbury and Murray will will this team to a, to a handful of victories this season. I still believe that, um, but I, I know that they're going to give him every opportunity to succeed because I think they they know that they have, from an offensive standpoint, from a schematic mm-hmm. standpoint, a special human being. Um, and then I, I think that he and Kyler just have that kind of relationship, and you don't want to disrupt that. I think you give Kingsbury a minimum three years to, to get this remedied with a couple solid off seasons. I don't think the same can be said for Kime, but I, I 100% agree with you, Blake. If they were to make a change, uh, they would do what they've done the last two times. They've switched up GMs and they'd promote from within. Yeah, it's uh, just the one I looked at as far as the best example that matched. Uh, made me think of the Raiders last year with Reggie McKenzie. I believe they had uh, three wins, I think, at the time or so, like two or three wins. Um, and it was December 10th, so it was a couple weeks before. They ended up finally bringing in, I believe, um, Mike Mayock, who was a friend. That was something that you were kind of anticipating. I think that right now for the Cardinals – there's not any type of inclination that that's going to be there. The reason why it's on the docket, as we've talked about, is as soon as the Cardinals start going south and as soon as you see those eight sacks that were listed on the stat sheet, probably still closer to four or five, but that's still four or five sacks right now has kind of been the pattern for this team every game. And that's four or five sacks that are not on Kyler. So you're going to be talking about over the span of a 16-game season, at least hitting that 60-sack mark. That is just so much for the most part. And that's really what you look at is there's two possibilities. One is you could say, hey, Kyle went out and he brought Brennan Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray. He found a quarterback. That buys him a year. You could also look at it and say, hey, Rod Graves was let go because they had one of the worst offensive lines that you've seen for multiple years, from 2010 all the way through 2012, and it was not fixed. 
I don't know what's going to happen with each of those. My gut feeling, at least for the most part, is like yours is it kind of will continue into 2020. I think that the Cardinals right now will show enough. If they don't, then you might be on high alert for it. But it is kind of fun just to like um, to imagine the two things. One would be like just picturing the, in the head like general manager Adrian Wilson would be kind of a hilarious but like very Cardinals-esque like uh, change where you're like, oh, okay, here, here we go. This is good. It would be very interesting because of the youth, the probably lack of experience. But here's the thing, Blake, it'd be a Cliff Kingsbury, Yeah, it'd be a Cliff Kingsbury-like hire in some of those cases, which is part of why I don't know if I see it, but... They've been so poor in the draft, specifically in the first round. I think most fans would be like, well, you can't do any worse than Steve's done. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're right. And a lot of people I know at least still are crediting, uh, and this will be always kind of the case how it goes to... If Kyler Murray plays well, people would credit that to Cliff Kingsbury. If Josh Rosen played well, then people would credit that to Steve Kime. And that's like an unfortunate truth. Similar to Kime. when Kime took over and the majority of his productive players that were on the team, of course, were were drafted by Rod Graves. Same yep, deal. Exactly. Like we were like, hey, oh, it's Kalea, so it's these guys. And then the first draft class in 2013, they just had issues. It was the same type of case. A lot of times it is a case of where you do have to give some credit to what Kime has at least done for the most part. I think that I agree with you. It's... A question of are you going to grade and as the whole how much does the Kyme and Cliff experiment make up because if more of these comments like Rudy Carpenter made about hey this team Kyler and Cliff are looking good and everyone else not so much and like we even talked about in our last podcast Vance Joseph was Steve Kyme's hand-picked guy if you get to the end of the year and you're still struggling to cover tight ends and you're still not seeing as much progress despite Patrick Peterson coming back that's going to be something that will reflect probably on on, uh, on him, and I, I do think that what we'll have to find out is we don't know how much the perception and the turmoil that people would perceive for the Cardinals of, hey, we fired our head coach, we kept the GM, hey, we let go of the GM. I think, at least for me, as long as the Cardinals feel that they are able to get whatever the best case is, keep going until they find their guy or someone that they at least believe in, I think that's fine. If that's Steve Kime, I think that's great. Hopefully he'll be able to draft and uh, to be able to prove us wrong in that aspect. Uh, let's shift a little bit into just talking about a little bit around the league, just from what we're seeing. Uh, you mentioned with head coaches, John, what's interesting this year, and this is kind of a stat I was even going to bring up before we got in. Uh, there's new head coaches this year who are brand new first time NFL head coaches are in Cincinnati. They're in Miami. They're in Denver. And the uh, that's basically it as far as for first time. There's a couple of first year NFL head coaches you're talking about. Um, Bruce Arians in Tampa. You're talking about Freddie Kitchens full-time in Cleveland. He did have uh, head coaching experience in interim last year. I think I think you have to count that, especially when we've seen what Bruce Arians was able to do in the interim. Yep. Um, and then you're also talking about Adam Gase with the Jets. So far, all of the brand-new head coaches right now, do outside of Freddie Kitchens and Bruce Arians, who were both interim head coaches at one point or a previous head coach, none of them have wins. Denver's 0-3. Arizona's 0-2, Miami is 0-3, Cincinnati is 0-3, and the New York Jets are 0-3. So new head coaches are really struggling this year. Now, what's interesting... Outside of Green Bay, yep. Outside of Green Bay, oh yeah, you're right, that's right. Matt LaFleur, you are correct. Matt LaFleur is the one exception you have with the 3-0 Green Bay Packers. Um, A lot of that, what's really fascinating here is that they kept their current defensive coordinator, Mike Pettin, didn't make him the head coach. Instead, they made Matt LaFleur their head coach. They kind of copied the model of, we're going to make sure that our play caller is our head coach just so that no one can kind of steal him away. As a result, Pettin may have his pick of some of those first round, uh, some of those open jobs that are going to be there um, next year. Um, also, kind of around the league, what's interesting is you're starting to see uh, kind of about, I want to say, probably about eight or so, I would call good teams Uh, maybe you could even say like closer to great teams Um, you're seeing that with the New England Patriots as usual you're seeing the Kansas City Chiefs there the Packers as we've mentioned Um, you're also seeing a couple of surprises at undefeated teams the Detroit Lions are undefeated technically they have a tie to the Arizona Cardinals which it's fascinating because they've won two in a row look like a different team it kind of through three weeks and makes the Cardinals two plays look more impressive, which is why the uh, Panthers game against the backup quarterback was such a letdown, unfortunately. But you have the Rams still at 3-0. and uh, A few surprise teams. The Dallas Cowboys look like an offense 
offensive juggernaut right now. They've got a new play caller for Dak Prescott. Um, they're kind of on the model of what you hope the Cardinals will be able to do with a lot of investment on the offensive line, using the rookie quarterback contract, having some guys to pay. And you also have the San Francisco 49ers at 3-0 as well. So you're looking at a lot of strong play within the NFC West division right now. I know Buffalo has three wins for the most part. But, John, what were some of your thoughts, at least, just looking around the league, particularly at the two NFC West teams that are 3-0, and the Niners and the Rams? Are you buying those 3-0 and starts by both teams, or are you out on the Niners or the Rams or on both? Uh, I am on uh, both of them being postseason uh, teams. Uh, hmm. I don't think either one will go particularly far. I think the Rams are, are less talented than they were a season ago. I still think that uh, McVeigh, too good a coach not to get them at right around 10, 11 wins. I think mm-hmm. that's going to be good enough to win the division, um, assuming Seattle doesn't uh, go crazy over the next two months. <laughs> I, I also think... You know, Jared Goff has kind of tempered off after that uh, primetime game against Mahomes. I think he, I think I saw that he's uh, since winning that game against Kansas City. I think it was on Monday Night Football or Sunday Night Football. Mm-hmm. He's got 11 picks and 11 touchdowns, um, and didn't play particularly well in the Super Bowl. Now he played fine in the postseason, but um, you're going to see that he's going to have to increase, you know, his productivity, especially after they've paid him. Um, and I'd love to see that that roster start to erode because of that contract. But I do think they get in. Uh, and same with San Francisco. San Francisco's got a cake schedule. They play like the Cardinals, a lot of backup quarterbacks. But like we talked about in our previous podcast, they have been accumulating talent for a while. Since those mm-hmm. Harbaugh days, they haven't hit on everybody. They've had some significant misses. Solomon Thomas doesn't look like a great player. They, Josh Garnett, they, they've, they've missed on some players. But they, you know, when you pick in the top five seemingly every season, you're going to hit on a handful of guys. They took Mike McGlinchey, who I liked last year. And they've got some consistent quarterback play. And Kyle Shanahan is, you know, a strong enough offensive mind where they can put up, you know, 25 plus points a game. But now the real difference is I, I think they've got one of the most underrated defensive units in the NFL just based on talent. Uh, I don't think schematically they're great. They kept their coordinator from a year ago. But, you know, looking at, at some of the players that they've added, so they went from having no pass rush last year um, to adding D Ford and, and Nick Bosa. Both of those guys, I, I would assume, are going to be mm-hmm. consistent, you know, edge edge threats for them, 10 plus sack a season kind of guys. DeForest Buckner is probably one of the most underrated. He was probably what Calais was for a long time, underrated yeah. until, you know, being on a national stage. He's phenomenal. They have some quality depth on the defensive line. And then their inside backers, I like Fred Warner, but uh, everything that I'm seeing and hearing out of San Francisco, Quan Alexander coming off that torn ACL looks phenomenal. They're, they're good enough in the secondary. Mm-hmm. I just think they have a, a lot of talent. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, in a deep end, with their schedule, I think they get to roughly nine-ish wins. And I think that's going to be good enough for a wild card spot. That leaves be. Seattle. I, I, I still think Seattle gets in because they're just too well coached. Russell Wilson's too good a player. Um, I think they figure it out defensively. I, I do think we could see three teams in the postseason from one division, which would be crazy. Hmm. I think both wild card teams, because I do think it shows how weak a lot of the other divisions are. Though you're right, John. NFC South is going to have one team that gets in. I think that the the NFC North is going to even it's kind of eat itself up. And I, I do think either the Packers or the Vikings are going to take that division, and, and yeah. the rest of those teams the are going to be at home watching. Be very very curious because the Lions, I believe, play the NFC West this year. Yeah, that will so be that the proving be point. Deal. If the Lions win in the NFC West, you're in the post. You might be in the postseason as a team if you can stay healthy and keep doing what you're doing. If you lose against the NFC West, you might be right on getting three teams potentially in. And I do think, real quick, Blake, I do think you know I love the Eagles personnel, but I do think what we're seeing is multiple long. Uh, postseason runs for that Eagle team starting to wear on the roster a little bit. They've yeah. had so many injuries. I still think they're going to be productive, but they, to me, have a little bit of a temper back 8-8 eight eight feel to them, whereas Dallas looks like the runaway favorite. So um, I, I think the NFC West gets minimum two two teams in the postseason, maybe three, but here's what I will say. And you might be a little bit depressed because it's not mm. the Cardinals and the division is so strong. But if you peel back the layers, the Cardinals are really going to have the only rookie quarterback in the division on that rookie contract. The Rams just paid Jared Goff, like I just mentioned. Seattle, you know, their roster isn't isn't nearly as strong as it used to be. They're paying Russell Wilson a good amount. He just got a raise. 
And then Jimmy Garoppolo, I think we, we would all agree, is overpaid, and nobody thinks the Niners are, are world beaters, um, and they're going to have to make some difficult decisions. They, they have to extend Buckner. Um, I think they have to extend. I'm trying to think who, who else that they have to keep up front. Kittle's going to get a contract extension. Yep, yep, yep. So, so they're going to have to make some decisions. The Cardinals are in a position not this year and probably not next year unless you know things turn around quickly, where they're going to be the team that can use Kyler Murray's contract to their advantage. We talk about it all the time. And if they may, that's why the, the Kime role is so fascinating to me and nauseating for the, for the rest of you because it could potentially be he could have a smorgasbord of picks and, dra- and draft capital and free agent money to spend and manipulate however he wants because mm-hmm. Murray is so cheap right now and the Cardinals really have to take advantage of that like the Rams did with Goff early on and like the Seahawks did with, with Russell Wilson. That, those were when the, when the teams were at their best. And for the Cardinals, I, just, I hope the roster, Blake, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, isn't mm-hmm. too far gone to do a, a flip in one or two off seasons hmm. because right now the current state of it, I mean, they just, they just need so much. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that may be, and this will be kind of the determining factor, is uh, the Cardinals, I think, are in a good time because if you look at what's happening with the Rams and the Niners, the Niners at least have been trying to build for a number of years. The Seahawks, for the most part, uh, have kind of already hit their point where they're having to retool and rebuild. Uh, this seems like it might be the wall type of season, just because a lot, at least the way their fans have been reacting, it seems to be a bit <laughs> extreme. I still feel like they have enough tenacity, but it is interesting to notice what's happening with the point total and kind of what's been the swing, because uh, a lot of people I know are not buying the Niners this year. I think that I'm buying their defense where they're not buying is the offense against the Steelers. And uh, I believe it was yesterday's game. They turned the ball over five times. They had basically uh, fumbles, uh, interceptions. That was the case. They turned the ball over five times and they still won the game. And part of that is Mason Rudolph uh, as a backup quarterback, at least maybe doesn't seem to be, I mean, (laughs) it's kind of funny to say Mason Rudolph is no Kyle Allen to be able to make that kind of a joke as far as, you know, quarterbacks are concerned, but if the Niners offense at least is not going to be able to do it from a quarterback spot consistently, then you'll have to worry, but they're still averaging about 32 points a game this year. Now, in contrast, this is what's interesting. Through three games last year, the LA Rams had scored 33, 34 points against the Cardinals, and then 35 points. You're averaging about 34 points a game or so through three games. They averaged 33 points a game for the entire year, which is insane to be able to you're essentially saying you're putting up almost five touchdowns a game so far through three games this year that number is down to 25 there for whatever reason whether it's that i mean they still have cooper cut back they just haven't seemed to be able to run the ball as much with todd Gurley. they lost quite a few linemen this year Uh, maybe there's a little bit more of the book out on jared goff they did end up just paying him but I am just curious because if the Rams and Jared Goff, like people are still pointing out videos of, hey, he's listening to McVay up at the line. Hey, there's kind of areas, like you even mentioned, he's thrown 11 touchdowns to 11 interceptions. If the Rams have hitched their wagons to Jared Goff and he ends up not being as far as a transcendent quarterback, but ends up being more of your Kirk Cousins type who Sean McVay has in store, that's going to be worrisome. Now, I, I think he's better than that personally. It is still something to watch because they have taken the step back for the most part with that. And when the those quarterback contracts come in we've seen it for the most part every team at least takes somewhat of a hit Uh, on the other hand you have the seattle seahawks always have been a defensive low scoring team they're averaging about 25 points a game cardinals right now i believe are at uh, overall 21 so you're kind of looking at right now i don't know if it's a shifting of the guard but this you're also talking about how the seahawks struggled against the Bengals. niners blew them out niners also played the hapless steelers and even just this, uh, the last week, as far as their other game of the year, they played the Buccaneers, and Jameis had thrown multiple interceptions in that game. Um, the Buccaneers, for the most part, just don't seem like they have it yet with Arian. So just looking around the division, there's opportunity, I feel, for Arizona if they, over the next few years, can build up their team because each of these other teams that are there are going to be strapped as far as be able to build and have some of the resources. Cardinals are going to be able to spend. Hopefully, people will want to play with Kyler Murray. You'll have to just make sure you get your uh, ducks in a row. I, I don't know how you feel about that, John, but it does feel like to me that because of where things are right now in the NFC West, if you can time it where you Cardinals have their rise at the same time that the Niners 
um, are having to kind of end up figuring out with if their quarterback isn't figured out. Now maybe this is kind of the rise of the Niners and the Cardinals just don't have the resources on defense. That's my one concern. But the Rams, at least for the most part, seem to be a team that right now is on the beginning potentially of a decline. They, they just haven't looked overall as good. They needed a lot of help to beat a Browns team that was missing their top two corners and essentially blitzed them all night uh, on Monday Night Football. Yeah, or I should say Sunday night football. <laughs> Andrew Whitworth is likely on his last leg. Um, they that team last year was loaded. That was the best team personnel wise in the league. They've also been one of the healthiest teams in the NFL since Sean McVay took over. Um, and we'll see that that's not a sustainable thing. Um, they have not had um, a plethora of injuries derail them like other contenders. Um, and I also think not the jury's out on McVay. I think they're always going to be productive offensively. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we've got two and a half seasons now of game film of him uh, and Jared Goff. And I think that at the end of the day, if you're able to pressure Jared, I think that you can turn him into a pedestrian quarterback. I still think he's great. Um, and, I, you know, I love the way that they're, you know, set up for success down the road with him. I think they're always going to be competitive. But they were worldly uh, last year. They were They were fantastic a juggernaut clearly one of the best teams in the football i think they just uh, go back to you know i look at a lot of those middling years with drew Brees and sean payton where the personnel was just okay but they were pl- paying breeze big time money and they were going i think they had three straight years of seven and nine i i could see something similar for the rams um i just i think that continually the biggest the biggest threat for the cardinals will always be seattle uh, because russell wilson's the first ballot hall of famer and pete carroll gets the most out of his guys they haven't mm-hmm. made the they have only missed the playoffs once since those two have been together and it was by one game um and then you look at I, you know the niners to me have you know a lot of reason to be excited this year but i i just i think jimmy garoppolo is limited um, I think he's more of a, a combination of like a Kirk Cousins and an Andy Dalton where he's got a little bit more mobility, but at the end of the day, it's just not explosive enough. I think he makes too many mistakes, throws too many interceptions. So again, you're not in a division with the Patriots or with Chief, the Chiefs now, or even somebody like Deshaun Watson with Houston. I mean, Russell's over 30 now. You have an opportunity to really lay the foundation through mm-hmm. smart drafting and bringing in a couple key free agents where you could be the talk of the NFC. You can be the talk of the league if you hit on some players and continue with, you know, the development of Kyler Murray. But if you try, you know, I've been a big advocate in bringing in Trent Williams because I saw this coming from the offensive line. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting giving up your first round pick for him at 31 years old. Or if even you can get him, he may not even be available for the most part. And it's, it's probably all hearsay, but that's the kind of move where it's like, how can we, mask you know our deficiencies now with a band-aid type of player um you get them for the right price that's one thing but you know at the end of the day play for the long term but my my only concern is is the long term viable with the state of this offensive line and in kimes inability to evaluate talent that's the biggest thing yeah, definitely agree. That will be one of the biggest things I know people will talk about will be the uh, kind of, if you look at the Arians era with Kime, there was still issues no matter what, who is the head coach. There was a lot of issues with um, their first round uh, pick. Unfortunately, throughout that next year, um, they did at least have some guys who have hit. I want to shift at least a little bit into that draft talk. I got a question from at row underscore boys at least, and this is a good one at least for the most part where he says, now how bad the line is, but let's say we end up with round one and a five to ten pick, and you got a guy like Jerry Judy on the board. Do you take him or you take an offensive line? Now, to, to check on this real quick, we have to go to obviously the place that everyone loves to go through in tankathon.com, which is a website that tracks what the NFL draft order is for 2020. Well, just make me aware of this website too. I, I, I'm pulling it up now for the first time like all all of you probably are <laughs> and uh you know the, most people use it for the nba because they're able to simulate you know those nba draft lotteries and just kind of simulate it and see hey are you going to get a chance at getting that number one pick for so far this year the cardinals right now are picking seventh now it's still early obviously we've seen for if you wanted to talk about uh, kind of projecting in advance the cardinals had a top 10 pick when they had a two and four record in 2013 they finished the season at 10 and 6 ultimately. You also can talk about how there's times where teams can get off to a fast start and then have an injury. A good example of that is how the Houston Texans essentially were a playoff-bound team and then Deshaun Watson gets hurt. That pick turns into a top 4 pick for the Cleveland Browns. So there's a lot still to go, so don't take it for what it's worth, but it does seem like so far there's a couple of teams that have really stood out. 
The number one would unfortunately be Josh Rosen's team in Miami, which seems to be selling off as, you know, it almost feels like that they would sell, you know, the, uh, the franchise owner would sell his car if it meant he could get, you know, a sixth round pick is kind of how it feels right now for the Dolphins. They seem to be set to tank. It feels like for just from what rumors that people have said, they've wanted Tua Tango Vailoa maybe even since his win in the Georgia game uh, for the national championship a few years ago. It might be very hard to out-tank them, especially if you're having a lot of people on board with that. So that would be the one team that stands out. Another one looks like the uh, New York Jets have Sam Darnold out with injury. They've got a pretty weak competition with the Dolphins in the AFC East. The Bills at least are 3-0 right now, but you've got to think that the Jets would win up a little bit. The Washington Redskins right now are also starting out 0-3. And you've got two of the other worst-looking teams in the NFL right now. There's the Cincinnati Bengals, who have looked like a, if it wasn't for a team like the uh, uh, like the Miami Dolphins, might look like a team that would be earning the number one pick. And you've got the Denver Broncos, who don't have a sack through three games and have Joe Flacco at quarterback. They spent a second-round pick on Drew Locke. Um, they're a team that if things do not go according to plan with a defensive head coach in Vic Fangio, they want to try to run the ball. Um, but what we've seen with Joe Flacco, it really ends up being kind of a case where teams like the Ravens decided they were ready to move on. So I don't think it's going to be a bounce back year for him. And then you've got the Cardinals currently ahead of the Cleveland Browns, Jacksonville Jaguars, who seem to have found something with, uh, <laughs> with uh, what is it, Minshew Mania, I think, at least for all of that that's going on. And then you've got a couple other teams in the Chargers and, uh, and uh, Oakland Raiders as well who have lost two straight. So right now, let's look at this. If the Cardinals have a top 10 pick, John, that would kind of put them as far as with the mock drafts go in range for one of those top 10 talents in 2020. And it would honestly be, for some fans, I think, a a disappointment because, you know, you're not looking at a playoff. You're not even kind of saying, hey, it's an acceptable uh, season for the most part. Let's just assume that this does play out for the most part. They have a top 10 pick. Sure. I'm of the perspective, and this is stuff I know we've talked about, we've had messages that have talked, I'm of the perspective that I think that you can probably find at least a right tackle. You can kind of find one if you want to somewhere in the second round. We've seen four rookies this year with guys like Dalton Risner, Jawan Taylor, our starters in the, in the second round. We've seen a the cost for a, a kind of a number one wide receiver when you take a look at Odell Beckham Jr. being traded and you look at Amari Cooper being traded and you look at how teams spent a pick for like a Hollywood Brown this year, it kind of cost you a first round pick. The cost for a left tackle we've seen at least has been either you pay a guy like crazy in free agency. I know you reported a little bit on Trent Brown that the Cardinals were looking at him and then the price just got egregious. Correct. The, yep. the cost for Laramie Tunsil was two firsts. And a second round pick. Now, there was, of course, other things that were thrown in, but it was kind of a win now desperation move that took place in the offseason. So right now you're looking at the question of, hey, would the Cardinals take a wide receiver in the first round if it's worth that versus a tackle, especially if tackles are hard to find. I'm a kind of the spot where I feel like I've said the team does really end up kind of needing a wide receiver for the most part. Even Kevin Zimmerman um, at Arizona Sports, I believe, he posted that and was like, I'm seeing guys aren't separating. You see that big Christian Kirk drop. Fitzgerald's 36. Maybe you should look at, you know, one of the wideouts from Alabama or even Kyler's teammate in CeeDee Lamb. You're also looking at the supply and demand of the tackle position. Like, John, I know you've made the argument that Cardinals may end up taking a tackle with their first pick and second pick. So let's see if we can answer this question. Would you be in the spot where you feel like that they should take O-line no matter what? Or if there's a wide receiver that you feel like is a number one transcendent guy that could also give Murray a helping hand on offense, do you take them? Because right now I think we both feel that we're trending toward offense being the pick, at least for the most part. It just seems to fit that with the team where you'll build the offense for the most part around Kyler, get everything that you can working to be able to compete in games, and then kind of load up as much as you can on defense for that. But what is your perspective on this, John, especially considering how the O-line is? Yeah, I think you you look to free agency, I think, to, f- to fix the defense, at least in the short term. I think you try to make it as respectable as you can uh, in free agency. And what have we seen always hit the market um, to the highest bidder is defensive linemen. I think that they're going to be able to, ha- to have a quality defensive lineman probably fall into their lap this this 
this March. I, I would almost put money down right now that that is one of the big marquee signings in the offseason. They bring in one of the top. I, I don't even know who's available right now, but I just that every offseason you can count on a, a quality defensive lineman, if not multiple, being able to, to be had in free agency. And I think that yep. they like the rest of some of the other players that they're going to have back and majority of their young players are on defense. So, yes, I would agree 100 percent outside of a transcendent talent falling to them, uh, you know, up front on defense which I don't, I don't think that's going to happen, assuming they pick in the latter half of the top 10. I think they go offense. So back to your point, I think that, in my opinion right now, the evaluations I've, I've had, stuff that I've read, just like everybody else, I think there's two tackles that separate themselves, Andrew Thomas of Georgia and Tristan Wirth of Iowa. There's a report coming out that Tristan may not even declare Mm-hmm. He is a specimen. Specimen. I actually like Tristan better than Andrew. Um, I think he plays in, in a better um, offensive line factory. I think that they're the best coached offensive linemen in the country. Both are 6'5", 320. Both play left tackle. Both project to be really good players at the next level. You look at the teams that, and again, this is September mock draft talk, so I bear with oh, yeah. us. If, if you want to turn this off, go ahead. But <laughs> you've got a team like the New York Jets that could be picking ahead of the Cardinals who are rough up front on the offensive line, who have an offensive head coach. Um, sure, they could go receiver. You've got Miami with the latter of their two picks could belong to the Pittsburgh Steelers that could be ahead of the Arizona Cardinals. They just traded away their left tackle, so they need a new one. Um, The um, Denver Broncos could use a left tackle. Um, Washington Redskins could use a left tackle. Cleveland Browns could use a left tackle. So, yeah, I I get frustrated because you you look at the top two tackles that are going to be available, um, and again, this is really premature, but you also need to weigh it against the fact that whomever the Cardinals are going to bring in, and I get that they have four or five receiver sets that they run, how often is CeeDee Lamb and Jerry Judy going to eclipse as a first-year player, Larry Fitzgerald, Christian Kirk, and somebody like Keyshawn Johnson, and who knows, Andy Isabella may emerge the second half of this season. It's going to be hard, and I know that that's the short-term thought process, but in, in today's day and age, I mean, the Cardinals have to think of this as year-to-year. They're going to get the most value in terms of a position of need at tackle, but I, I, you know, I absolutely can can you know sympathize with the folks that understand that the team needs you know a premier receiver. They need a lot of things. They don't have a second pass rusher. They clearly need help on the defensive yeah. line. I mean, I think I think Steve Kime or whomever's making the pick will go into it thinking, let's address the offensive line and get a left tackle for Kyler Murray. But if he's not able to do that. He's going to probably prioritize it like he did this year, and it's worked out for him. And that being they're going to go heavy on the analytics. Um, they're going to take the best player available. Mm-hmm. It's probably going to feel because this, this roster has a ton of holes in it. I just I hope it's not a safety or an off-the-ball linebacker or something like that because I think those positions are, are limited in value. I think they're important, but not as important as a, as a bookend edge rusher or a disruptor on the interior defensive line or a left tackle. You know what I mean? So – they're going to yeah. have to weigh all of that, um, but again, it's it's September. We don't have to make a decision today. But I just I feel like every season with this franchise, you can start a mock draft with an offensive lineman until they improve, and you could probably be justified in doing so. But again, it's not so much trying to force the pick to be a tackle or a guard or wherever they pick. Mm-hmm. It's at the at the tail end of the first round, early in the second round. There are always guys available. They fall for whatever reason, especially on the interior. A lot of really good players um, in the NFL, specifically guard and guards and centers, go in that sweet spot of around 33 to 75. The Cardinals haven't taken advantage of that. They've gone heavy on corner, defensive back, Buda Baker. Byron Murphy, you know, historically have gone maybe outside linebacker, Marcus Golden. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think Daryl Washington was a second-round pick. I mean, they've gone heavy with certain kinds of players. They just have never really, I think, outside of Deuce Latouille, have not gone uh, offensive lineman in the second round. I think that was 2006, the, the Matt Liner draft. So um, that that's where my frustration is. I would love to see them get – a plug-and-play guard because again you look at the offensive line they need everything so it's it's yeah. easy to go and pinpoint you know we could take this here and this here but you know at the end of the day what i believe is they need to get protection for murray and then you mm-hmm. can almost just go bpa because however you can improve this roster outside of you know forcing picks in the offensive line i think you do it but i think that the protection for murray stands so above everything else because we know 
when he's upright, he works. He's a he's a, mm-hmm. I, in my opinion already proven himself to be a competent NFL quarterback in route to being a franchise quarterback. But you need protection, um, and I think he can throw receivers open too. And unlike offensive line, you can find capable pass catchers like a Keyshawn Johnson later in the draft. Outside of the first couple rounds for the offensive line, it dries up real quick out, right. outside of some outliers. So it's it's early, but man, I would just be be even more devastated than I was this year when they didn't take one early on. Yeah, I think that's for me. I think that because of your need and because, like you mentioned, there's a need at center, there's a need at left tackle, and there's a need at right tackle. Even if you do slide Mason Cole in at center, um, you still have then a decision to make. You'd love to see the team at least be able to decide, hey, either we're going to uh, have a, an evaluation process at some point for if AQ Shipley is going to have to be a guy you try to bring back next year. That's not a good in, uh, not a good indication for Cole. Your hope would be that you don't have to worry about that, and then you can focus on other spots. I think the kind of the interesting one for me is like when you're looking at the number of snaps, there is technically a spot that could open up. It would be taking over for. Um, I believe it's uh, – gosh, this is going to drive me crazy. It would be taking over for Demir Bird because the team does kind of need an outside receiver for the most part, and we have seen a reliable deep threat is something that Kyler Murray does need. So that's the one argument that would be interesting is, you know, if you wanted to say, hey, what about a C.D. Lamb type of player who, you know, would line up outside and makes the contested catches and has a rapport that we've seen with Murray would make sense. Um I think that the biggest question for me, at least between you know, Judy or even Henry Ruggs, has gotten a lot of love. He's kind of like a Hollywood 2.0. We've seen the production. You want to try to find a guy who fits with your quarterback, but ultimately what I want is for the Cardinals to go into this offseason with as much cap room as they're going to have for quite a while. They don't have that dead money on the books anymore. I want them to try to address as many of those needs possible so that when the draft comes, I feel like that they can just take the best possible player. If that's a franchise left tackle, fantastic. If that's going to be a pass rusher, fantastic. If they even feel like that's the case where they get a guy like uh, Grant Delpit, who lets a lot of people are looking at out of LSU, and you'd be like, oh gosh, they're taking a DB. That's very Cardinals. Hey, if they've addressed their other needs throughout the offseason – then I think you're fine. Now, uh, I do think the two ones that stand out again are going to be the offensive tackle because of the demand that is in case and the demand that there is for wide receivers, I think, are the top two that look up. But I do think that there is a case, John, that one of these guys may fall. You're talking about right now we don't know where all the things are going to go with the quarterbacks. Usually there's always two or three who go. We've seen three that went in the top 15 last year. We saw four that went in the top 10 the season before. You're looking at guys like the Tua, the Herberts of the world. Even a guy like a Joe Burrow is starting to rise up. We'll see if there's another guy who emerges late in the process. You know, at this time last year, no one was talking about Kyler Murray at all. He went on to to win the Heisman ultimately and then become the number one overall pick. And it just shows you how little we know. Um, There's also guys like Chase Young is looking like a stud at Ohio State. And then there's the running back, Jonathan Taylor. There's always a running back that seems to somehow go in the uh, the top 10 picks every other year or so. And then you've got those kind of three wide receivers and Judy Ruggs and CeeDee Lamb. So if the Cardinals end up with a top 10 pick, even if they end up slightly outside the top 10, there's enough other needs that the team has that you're going to see an offensive tackle or a wide receiver potentially could slip or potentially not be there. So it's so early in the process. I think right now what we want to see, John, and this is what I want, is the Cardinals to be aggressive, uh, even if they end up trading a pick, if they can lock down a position for the most part, um, and then that way they can use their number one to just add a difference maker to the team. Uh, that's all I think that I want for the most part. All right, uh, let's go and finish up and wrap up for tonight. We're going to go ahead and just brew our preview for the Seahawks game. So, so far, John, the Seahawks have been averaging about 25 points a game. The Cardinals have been giving up 29 points a game. Uh, it's kind of interesting because I know when we talked with our Seahawks guy and Mookie, at least, he talked about how the Seahawks' biggest issue they had was, outside of Clowney now, uh, getting to the passer They also love to play a lot of linebackers, kind of similar to the Panthers, and their secondary is not the Legion of Boom that it once was. Uh, I'm curious, John, what are some of your thoughts on how the Cardinals match up? What are areas that are good for the Cardinals, and what are areas of concern? I think this is going to be a game where the Cardinals are going to have some opportunities to sustain drives. 
the New Orleans Saints, granted, they have one of the best offensive lines in all of football. But <laughs> and a heck of a running back. Heck of a yeah, running back. Their back's too. up against the wall with a Teddy Bridgewater quarterback. I mean, Alvin Kamara was very effective. Uh, I think he had roughly 150 total yards receiving and rushing combined, two touchdowns, very efficient. Um, but then they were also aided by a special teams touchdown. They, um, they they built a big lead, 27-7 over Seattle, and Seattle does what they do. They, they rallied back and almost won, ended up losing 33-27. to, to 27. Um, I think the Cardinals are going to be competitive in this game because I, just, I think that Seattle, outside of Russell Wilson, if they can somehow contain him, which is going to be brutal, wow. Him and then they've got two really good wide receivers, well, two at least good wide receivers, one all around, one in in terms of being the rookie so far. That's the biggest thing I think you want to look at, too. DK Metcalf and and Tyler Lockett are going to present problems, but I think it's more going to be a priority of trying to play a better game than they did a a week ago. And I think Chris Carson, who really kind of fumbled the game away for them, I think they're going to be motivated to get him yards. Um, against this vulnerable Cardinal defense. Now, I do think the Cardinals are going to be are motivated to come out and play well. Um, so I think it could be a low-scoring game early on. I just think personnel-wise, Seattle just has too many good players up and down the roster, similar to, to Carolina. But I, I do think it's going to be close throughout the duration of the game. I don't think it's going to be a blowout. Um, I, I thought that last week, but, you know, what do I know? Um, I, I think the Cardinals match up well with the defensive backs for Seattle. I think you can separate against this team. You saw Andy Dalton pick apart this secondary. Right. Um, so, again, I think there are points to be had. And like you mentioned, if they're f- struggling to rush the passer, um, that bodes well for a Cardinal team right now that's struggling to block anybody up front. Um, if Murray can settle down and play his game, the game he played the, throughout the first two games, um, they're going to be in this game. Um, but I just I think Russell Wilson makes too many plays. I think that, that you're going to have to to beat him week in and week out. You have to be the aggressor. You have to rush the passer. You have to be in his face. And the Cardinals, you know, even with their best teams, weren't able to do that consistently. Yeah. So I think that the Cardinals end up losing this game, something to the effect of 27, 20, or 21. Um, but I do think they make it competitive, and I think that the defense plays better. But they, they just don't have the horses, Blake. And I can't see the, the, the Seahawks losing two in a row. Yeah, that's going to be it's really tough cuz in some cases the Cardinals match up well because the Seahawks the way that they want to play is and how they've basically always played under Pete Carroll is the same type of cover 3 defense and then they've got their linebacker core they try to put strength in their linebackers. They've got Bobby Wagner. You're looking also at KJ Wright still with the team he resigned with them. You got Michael Kendricks as well, which you know, he's got whatever that is financially going on, I guess is the case, but they got him. So they've got their strength is in their linebacker core and then they believe in trying to rush the passer and get some interior uh, rushing. Now, they do at least not have um, right now I believe they have on IR. They've got um Kalen Reed and then also I believe they have um Oh, uh, who's another? There's another Alabama guy. They have Jaron Reed. That's the other one that they have. He's the one who's suspended, at least um, for the most part. He's been suspended and will not be playing against the Cardinals, uh, at least to my knowledge. So you're talking then about a front defensive line that really just has Jadavion Clowney. So it's going to be interesting how they'll match up with him. It's going to be up to Humphreys for the most part, I believe, with his game, how it'll go. Um, or if it's going to be on the right-hand side, then you're going to have to have that be a question. Is this going to be a spot where the Cardinals are able to you know, get the ball out quick, or you're going to be able to get some deep shots, or you're going to get Murray on bootlegs? I think the best advantage for the Cardinals is if the Seahawks want to run three linebackers and the Cardinals run four wide receivers, the Seahawks are either going to have to match up a linebacker on a wide receiver, which will be a mismatch, or they're going to have to essentially play four corners, which they don't want to do. Like they, they, they're very stubborn in terms of they won't want to do that. And they're going to get down into some corners who really are not really NFL caliber, unfortunately, as far as after Trey Flowers and Shaquille Griffin. They just don't have other. They even have Jamar Taylor, who is the former Cardinals corner, is like on their team. So I think in that sense, it does match up in some cases for the Cardinals of being able to find mismatches. But you're right. It is kind of similar to the Carolina game in that while they don't have the same front seven, I do at least have doubts. And on the offensive side, you're talking about a team that still hasn't been able to defend the tight end and also has had uh, two very good deep threat weapons in Tyler Lockett and also a huge deep threat weapon who can make contested catches um, in uh, – oh, gosh, it's escaping me at least for that one here. But um, Oh, DK Metcalf, of course. 
So I do think that this is a game of the Cardinals. I don't think that Seattle is going to get off to as good of a start as they want. I think that it's going to come down to the play of Terrell Suggs. And if they'll be able to stop Seattle's play action plays to Nick Vanette and Will Disley. Uh, the Cardinals at least were burned in the past by former Seattle tight ends for touchdowns. I do think that that's a trend that continues. I've got Seattle winning 24-21. I think the Cardinals match up well enough that they'll be able to put up 21 points. But it is going to have to come down to making some sort of defensive play. You'll need to see Terrell Suggs beat Jermaine Iafetti and be able to make a defensive play of some sort. We know that Russell Wilson doesn't like to make mistakes all that often, so maybe you force a fumble. But unless they can be able to kind of play a almost truly complete game, and then also be able to hold up in the end to stop the Russell Wilson fourth quarter magic. I think you'd have to hope that the best chance for the Cardinals is that this turns into a slugfest where the Cardinals are, you know, they're not able to, for whatever reason, get pressure on Kyler. They're able to continually go deep and burn them where it kind of turns into the Panthers shootout like we thought it was. And then you'll hope that the Cardinals can make enough defensive plays because I'm with you, John. I've got the Cardinals taking a loss in this one. Now, if they do come back with the win, then I think we'll be able to really test, put a testament to the Cardinals really just wanting a win. The Seahawks being a team that looks like it's in collapse. That will be the narrative, at least if the Cardinals pull out a win. Yeah. What do you think, at least if the Cardinals, let's say the Cardinals do end up going and pulling out a W in this one. What, what do you think will be some of the reasons why or reasons why you think we may be wrong here? It has to be because Murray played out of his mind. I just <laughs> I can't see this defense forcing the kind of turnovers necessary or the kind of pressure you need to get Russell Wilson out of the game outside of a Russell Wilson injury. It, it has to be on Murray where he has the ability to match Wilson score for score mm-hmm. um, and put together the kind of game that you want from the first overall pick um and he puts his team on the back on his back and the def- and the offensive line steps up and they allow yep. you know less than three sacks and they're um controlling the line of scrimmage they're they're run blocking well for david johnson you're putting together slow methodical drives and i get that's not kingsbury's mojo but maybe you have to go a little bit more toward that at least in the short term to, to kind of get this offense right um, in terms of pass protection and slow things down, um, I thought David looked good running downhill when he gave, it was had opportunities against Carolina. There mm-hmm. were there were creases to be had, but you know you had the big holding penalty on AQ Shipley. But I think that's the kind of game the Cardinals will have to play to win it. I, I don't think that they can match score for score with Seattle unless Seattle consistently turns the ball over. It just it, it's yeah. a it's a recipe for disaster. But you mentioned it, Blake. I, I could also see Seattle being a little bit overconfident just like maybe the Cardinals were a week ago and coming off a loss they oh we can get right against Arizona and they've got a lot of mm-hmm. you know younger players on the team with with going cheaper in terms of personnel because of Wilson's contract I could see that happening absolutely but over the ca- course of four, of four quarters Russell Wilson is just too hard to, to keep down where I don't think he's going to score close to 30. Yeah you look at the um You can hold them under 30, I guess. You look at the Seahawks against the Saints last week. Saints did get a block, I believe, on a uh, a field goal, a big special teams play. Michael Dixon has struggled this year. Cardinals, I'm very curious if they'll have Andy Lee for this game. We're recording this on a Monday night. We haven't had an injury update to that yet. Cardinals may have to bring in another puncher, which stings because he's a weapon, and Michael Dixon this year has not been as consistent as he was almost an automatic down-within-the-ten kind of guy last year for the Hawks, but... Look at how that score trended. It was 7-7 in the first quarter. Um, I know I'm still having to watch the game recap. I only got to catch a few of the highlights for the most part, but the Saints at least were able to put up points onto the Seahawks. They used the special teams and wrote it, but in that fourth quarter, Russell Wilson busted out. They started passing. It's like how it happens every time the Seahawks don't want to win the game with Russell Wilson's arm up until they're like, okay, we have to. They put up 20 points in the fourth quarter. Some big plays. They did not end up coming away with enough for the win, so maybe you catch the Seahawks sleeping for the most part, and you can pull out a similar win for the uh, for the team, but John, I'm kind of with you. After the performance this week, kind of with the Cardinals exposing it, unless they can put together a complete game, I think that this is just going to be a little bit too much of a mismatch. But, hey, I am I can totally see where I could be wrong on all of that. And then I think that we'll be going in here looking at Week 5, which will be a game against the Bengals that, in that sense at least, for the most part, will probably feel mostly like a must-win because if you start slipping into – 0-6, 0-7, uh, and then Patrick Peterson comes back, but the schedule gets tougher. A lot of fans, I think, are going to start to 
Um, really start wondering at least about the team and the direction for the most part. And even if you do end up only getting one win of the next two, I think it's going to be a, a tough sell for a lot of fans to want to buy into this team just because even if Kyler does play well, ultimately winning football is what fans want. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that we've had enough moral victories that the, the fan base is starved for an actual one. And Kyle, the, the more you expose Kyler Murray to He, the frustrations for him will grow so they need to up you know you could almost make an argument that they're failing him as a franchise right now and they need to get it turned around and so hopefully this is the right path that they're on but you just you never know with this team do you Blake <laughs> no you don't know yep so all right so so far I'm trying to keep track of our different uh records throughout the year for that one with the Lions game um I'll have to listen back to see but I know that we got wrong last week at least we both had picked a win I know the week before the Ravens we both correctly picked losses um, I think I think you may have picked a loss, and I picked a win in the first one. So technically, we split <laughs> because they tied. So uh, that's really one thing. So we'll keep track of some of this throughout. For the most part, we both are picking loss on the season. At the end of the season, we'll see who ends up being, I guess, the better uh, as far as this kind of uh, pick. Might not be much of a contest. It might be too close. I know. We'll see how it is. I know. I, I thought about it afterwards. Like, oh, it would have been fun to have kind of you guys as some of the listeners vote on it. So uh, in lieu of that, it'd be fun to kind of have us pick versus the listeners. In lieu of that, let's go ahead and have you guys just drop us a line at ROTB pod or using hashtag ROTB pod. Uh, give us your prediction. Do you think the Cardinals are going to be able to beat the Seahawks or do you have them getting a loss as well? Um, let's go ahead and wrap this up at least for the most part with just kind of the shout outs to where you can find each of our content. Uh, John, the listeners already know that you're not located at Johnny's football anymore, but where can they find you if they want no, to No, that's a parody account now, which is great. You should follow that guy too. I'm at Johnny Touchdown <laughs> on Twitter. And you can also find uh, my work in the written form on, I guess Twitter is also written, but uh, in proper written form on revengeofthebirds.com. Blake, where can they find your tremendous content? Yeah, I'll be over at uh, Revenge of the Birds. I'll be having a bit more just looking at uh, just some of the changes that we're seeing with the NFC West, especially the uh, kind of the point totals, as I mentioned, I know last week. The Cardinals right now, they're still only averaging 21 points a game. You'd love to see if they could get that up to a little bit higher, about 24 or even higher to 30. Uh, we'll see how that goes as far as throughout the year. Um, I'll be very curious to seeing some of you guys' thoughts as well. I know some people are already begging for some draft talk, so always can feel free to drop a line right there. Um, thank you guys again so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Hopefully it'll be after a Cardinals win. Um, we'll be there ready into week five. A quarter of the season will have been gone. John, it feels like it's just flying by, doesn't it? Yeah, let's get to the off season and get some new players. Uh, <laughs> definitely how I feel. It's a transition year to tough end, but we said it. You've even tweeted it out yourself. This is a rebuild. It's never going to be fixed in one off season after what they went through last year. Here's the hope that it's going to be sooner rather than later that we'll be able to celebrate a bird game victory. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone. Have a good one. Until next time, this is the Revenge of the Birds podcast. <laughs>